Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the sponsor of Oncofarm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. I'm recording this on August 8th, 2019 from my office here in Mount Home, Tennessee. It's a beautiful uh, late summer day here in East Tennessee. Bit of a packed uh, agenda for today's podcast. I fear I'm going to go longer than my goal. Uh, I've got four things I want to talk about. Uh, one, and we'll spend the most time on this, uh, are the recently published and released guidelines from the American Society of Clinical Oncology on the prophylaxis and treatment of VTE in patients with cancer. Uh, then we'll go over some recent FDA approvals, uh, pembrolizumab update, uh, a new drug that's for a very rare condition, so I won't go very in-depth in that and then finally, a little food for thought if you are interested in taking the BCOP exam based on a recent publication looking at uh, pass rates and the different pathways you can take to get to sitting for that BCOP exam. So uh, let's dig into these ASCO. Uh, it's a, actually a, an update to the guidelines. So the first ASCO guidelines for VTE treatment prophylaxis were published in 07, updated in 13, uh, then another update in 15, and the 15 update just basically said see back to the 2013 uh, guidelines. There's not a whole lot new here except for the DOACs. So we do get some mention and some recommendation and some consideration for the use of DOACs for the treatment of VTE in patients with cancer. So there were you know six clinical questions they looked at. Um, I'm going to focus on two of them, one being should ambulatory patients with cancer receive anticoagulation for VT prophylaxis during chemo? So these are patients that don't yet have a VTE, but they have cancer, so they're at greater risk of VTE. They're getting chemo, even greater risk of VTE. Should we put them on a prophylactic dose of anticoagulation up front to begin with? That's one question that we'll look at how the, um, the guidelines have been revised. And uh, the question four they looked at will be the second one we uh, discuss, which is what is the best treatment of VT in patients with cancer. Uh, so these were, um, you know, not a surprise um, based on uh, the publications we've seen, Avert, Cassini uh, for the prophylaxis setting and then for treatment, Selecti, uh, Hoskai VTE cancer as well as uh, AD, uh, Adam VTE. So let's look first at this question two, which is about the um, prophylaxis of so preventing VTE in patients who have not yet had VTE, they have active cancer, and are about to receive systemic treatment. So let's look at these recommendations. Uh, recommendation 2.1, routine pharmacologic thromboprophylaxis should not be offered to all patients without cancer. Makes sense. High-risk outpatients with cancer defined as a score of two or higher prior to starting a systemic chemo regimen may be offered thromboprophylaxis, uh, pixaban, rivaroxaban, or low molecular weight heparin, um, provided there are no significant risk factors for bleeding and no drug interactions for the rivaroxaban and a pixaban. Uh, consider, you know, pros and cons. And this is, uh, the quality of evidence here is intermediate to high for a pixaban and rivaroxaban and intermediate for low molecular weight heparin. So this is not a new question of should these patients with cancer getting treatment who are at a higher risk for VT, should we put them on uh, uh, anticoagulation up front in the first place. That's not a new question. The, um, the question kind of originates and goes back not just to does it make sense to put them on a prophylactic anticoagulant, but because of some early studies 
and some preclinical work suggesting that heparin and heparins, like low molecular weight heparin, actually had an anti-cancer effect or an anti-inflammatory effect as well, and that maybe there's overall survival benefit from doing this. Now that has since been studied further and found not to be the case, so that's why this wasn't recommended in the past. Um, but we do have this evidence with low molecular weight heparin uh, that if someone with cancer, not necessarily even with a high coronascore, which we'll talk about uh, momentarily. But giving them a low molecular weight heparin, yeah, they have a lower risk of VTE, just like anybody. If you put them on, if you had enough people, high enough sample, and you put everybody in the world on, you know, 40 milligrams of anoxaparin, they're probably going to have less VTE, uh, probably going to have more bleeding events. And that's what that's what we've seen is, you know, maybe a 50% reduction in the risk of VTE. Now, the risk is maybe not that high. You're talking maybe 8 to 4%, 10 versus 5%. Um, there was some interesting stuff here in the, that I hadn't um, read. There are actually some... Uh, studies in patients with pancreatic cancer, and they'd give them full dose anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin and saw some pretty good outcomes as far as reducing the risk of VT in those patients. Uh, but what I want to focus on are the publications from um, uh, Avert and Cassini. So both of these um, did not just look at all patients with cancer getting chemo, but those who are, quote, high risk for VT based on a Corona score of two or more. So the Corona score is a validated. Uh, you know, risk assessment tool for patients with cancer and the risk of chemo, uh, or the risk of chemo-associated VTE. And these are not inpatients, this is in the ambulatory care setting. So it's a, basically a, like a five or six point scale. And what both these two studies, Avert and Cassini, defined as high risk is a score of two or higher. Uh, so the way this works is you look at the site of cancer. If it's a, they call a very high risk, so pancreatic or prostate, or pancreatic or stomach cancer, that's worth two points. And then lung lymphoma, gynecologic bladder, testicular, or renal cancer is worth one point. If your platelet count is above 30, uh, 350,000, that's worth one point. Uh, hemoglobin less than 10, or use of red cell growth factors is worth one point. So this is a little bit dated in that, uh, you know, EPO was used back then. Uh, leukocyte count, uh, so white count above 11 was worth one point, and a BMI above 35 was worth one point. Um, and the way the scoring system works is low risk is zero points, they say. Uh, intermediate risk is one to two points. And then high risk was three or more. So even the Corona score um, says that high risk is three points. And one of the lead authors on these papers is Corona. They used a, uh, a cut point of two or greater to determine high risk, which, is, which I think is interesting. So basically anybody with gastric cancer, anybody with pancreatic cancer would qualify as high risk based on the inclusion criteria for both AVERT and Cassini. So AVERT looked at a PIXABAN, two and a half milligrams twice a day compared to placebo. And uh, as I flip to my results here, and now we haven't talked about these two studies in depth on the podcast, like we have Selecti and, uh, and the other ones for treatment. So the primary endpoint of VTE, whether it's DVT, PE, or just an incidental finding, uh, so 4.2% of patients in a PIXBAN had a VTE that was statistically significantly lower than the placebo group, who had a 10.2% incidence of VTE, uh, p-value less than 0.001. And there were a little over 500 patients in this study. Now, as you might expect, uh, an anticoagulant, generally if it's better than placebo, the next question you have to ask is, did it cause more bleeding than placebo? And it did. So 3.5% any bleeding episode compared to 1.8% in any bleeding episode. Um, so 
you know, you're seeing maybe a 50% decrease in the risk of a VTE, similar to what was seen previously with the low molecular weight heparin study, maybe a 1% absolute increase in the risk of bleeding. Again, consistent with what we've seen uh, in this population before. Now, 25% of the patients in this, studies, in this study had gynecologic malignancies, 25% have lymphoma. So with two malignancies, you're making up the over, you're making up half of this patient population. I think that's important because they're going to receive different chemo. And one of the nice things about AVERT is if in the supplementary appendix, they do show you the groups of patients, uh, whether the apixaban or placebo group, what percentage received platinum. So for example, I think 10% roughly in each group received platinum agents. Uh, maybe 8% each group received taxis. And those are well balanced there. Now what we don't see are maybe drugs that had an increased risk of bleeding like bevacizumab, especially with 25% of these patients having gynecologic malignancies, potentially ovarian cancer. Uh, was there, were there more patients receiving bevacizumab in the placebo group, or I'm sorry, in the apixaban group? Maybe that contributed to bleeding, but it's probably, uh, probably is the apixaban. Now, uh, I'm gonna move on to uh, the Cassini study now. Now, this was a larger study, about 1,000 patients looking at uh, rivaroxaban 10 milligrams a day versus placebo. So just like with the avert pixaban study, we're using a prophylactic dose here. We're not using the VTE treatment dose. Um, so they looked at 1,000 patients. Now this is somewhat controversial. What they did next is they screened patients to look to see if they had um, a subclinical VTE at presentation. And in 49 patients, so 50 patients, 5% of their whole study, they did have a VTE at baseline and therefore were not randomized and then therefore are not included in the efficacy analysis. Now that's not what we do necessarily in real life is screen patients before starting to see if they have this. Uh, but if you look at the primary endpoint here, uh, the risk of VTE was 8.8% in placebo compared to 6% with rivaroxaban that was not significant. And that's looking at six months, the treatment period. And if you extend that to the period just afterwards, then you do see uh, a greater, um, you know, maybe a, a benefit uh, if you look a little bit later. Um, primary safety endpoint was major bleeding, 1% with placebo, 2% with rivaroxaban. That was not statistically significant. That is in line with what we see though, uh, at looking at, um, you know, these bleeding events is it looks to be about one percent more uh, with the anticoagulant, even at prophylactic doses. Now, even though that wasn't statistically significant, is in line with everything else that we've seen. Uh, as far as the patients in Cassini with the rivaroxaban study, thirty-two percent pancreatic, twenty percent gastric or gastroesophageal junction, and sixteen percent lung. So, a very different patient population with regards to cancer type here. This study is also about twice as large, uh, maybe not twice as large, because they only end up ha um, actually evaluating about 850 patients. Uh, one of the nice things about the rivaroxaban study here is the supplementary appendix um, gives you the data based on chronoscore. So let's just look at what the chronoscale says is high risk, which is a chronoscore of three or higher. So if you look at those patients, there was a, a VTE in 13 out of 123, or 10.5% of patients with placebo, compared to uh, seven uh, out of 134 with rivaroxaban, which is 5.2%. So you see almost an exact 50% decrease uh, in the rivaroxaban, this large study of over 800 patients, if you look at Corona 3. Um, so coming back to the big picture, and that we now may consider the use of DOAX uh, or low molecular weight heparin to prevent VTE in these patients with cancer receiving chemo at high risk, what should we do? Uh, well, 
I'm not sure that I'm going to be recommending this to, to everybody. Maybe if somebody has a Corona score of 3 or 4, it makes some sense. But you're talking a, you know, a, a 1 in 10 chance for an individual patient. Uh, it depends on the type of chemo they're getting and how myelospressive that chemo is. Uh, there are other factors to consider as well. Um, but it's certainly not a, a, a slam dunk or a home run based on a vert or cassini that you have to put these patients on that. And uh, of course, there was no... Uh, there was no overall survival benefit for these patients. We also have to consider drug interactions and everything that goes along with the risk of putting a patient on an anticoagulant. Uh, for example, the availability locally of reversal agents and whether or not you have those and where the patient lives. So we have patients in rural areas who may be an hour, hour and a half from the main hospital where we could give uh, something like uh, activated PCCs if we needed reversal for these for these folks. So that's the, uh, the ASCO update for uh, prophylaxis. So now let's look at the VTE treatment. And um, quick sidebar, if you're ever on rounds and you hear the attending physician or your preceptor say, oh, there's this wonderfully written article from such and such time about this thing. What they're saying is, I wrote an article. Um, and I just want to say before we talk about, about the guidelines, there's a wonderful article recently published in AJHP that is uh, a review of the use of DOACs for um, treating VTE in cancer patients, as well as their use in patients with cancer that have atrial fibrillation. Um, so the, I guess the suggestion or the findings from that publication, AJHP, uh, from July of 2019, are, very, are basically the same as what the ASCO guidelines have said which is to put rivaroxaban and edoxaban at the same level as low molecular weight heparin based on selecting and hoskai VTE cancer. Um, historically, low molecular weight heparin based on initially the CLOT study uh, showed that low molecular weight heparin was superior to vitamin K antagonists like warfarin in preventing the recurrence of VTE in cancer patients who had a VTE. So low molecular weight heparins are always preferred compared to the vitamin K antagonists. When the DOACs came on the market, um, we did not know if they were going to be as good as a low molecular weight heparin in VTE and cancer, or would they be like warfarin or somewhere in, the, in between. And so what we've seen is that uh, they, yes, they are as good as a low molecular weight heparin. Now, they do have what appears to be a higher bleeding risk, especially or perhaps only in certain conditions. Those conditions appear to be patients with an active gastrointestinal lesion. So somebody with metastatic colon cancer, for example, or metastatic gastric cancer, or especially metastatic gastroesophageal junction cancer, um, and perhaps uh, active genital urinary cancer, so metastatic renal cell carcinoma or bladder, those sort of things, so that we did see higher rates of bleeding. So the ASCO guidelines have said that rivaroxaban equivalent to a low molecular weight heparin. Uh, same thing for a doxaban. The question that people will ask is people really like a pixaban is the guidelines don't recommend explicitly a pixaban. Uh, now Adam VTE um, showed a very nice benefit and a safety profile of a pixaban for treating cancer associated VTE has not been published yet. Um, so is there a class effect? Yeah, probably. In fact, the clot study was with daltaparin but everyone's very comfortable using an oxaban for treating cancer-associated VTE, so I think folks are probably going to be okay using a pixaban, even though the guidelines don't yet say that. They talk about uh, a doxaban and rivaroxaban, but I think we're okay to do that, but uh, my personal feeling is to try to avoid the DOAX, and I would prefer a low, low, low molecular weight heparin those patients at a greater bleeding risk with VTE or cancer-associated VTE, 
Um, so those being active GI and active GU cancers. So those are the ASCO guidelines. They're available for free. Uh, certainly worth uh, giving a refresher or reading if you are new to oncology pharmacy because it is something that will come up probably every day. Okay, moving on to some of uh, maybe some, some less newsworthy stuff. But July 30th, so a little over a week ago, the FDA approved pembrolizumab for advanced esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. Um, so you can think of the esophagus as a tube, which is what it is, right? So the top two-thirds of the esophagus are squamous cells generally. The bottom third, uh, you start to see um, a different histology. So the top two-thirds is where you'd see squamous cell cancers. The bottom third in the gastroesophageal junction is where you would see adenocarcinoma. This approval is for squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus. So you could have somebody with esophageal cancer that is an adenocarcinoma. This approval does not apply to that. Uh, but this is based off of Keynote 180 and 181. Um, they uh, enrolled patients who had a not a tumor proportion score, not a TPS, but a CPS, combined positive score of more than 10, uh, who had failed at least one line of chemo for squamous cell cancer of the esophagus to either pembrolizumab standard dose or uh, a couple different chemo regimens uh, based on physician's choice, either docetaxel, paclitaxel, or ironotecan. And there was an overall survival benefit for pembrolizumab, and that's based off of Keynote uh, 181. So the median overall survival for the pembrolizumab group was 10.3 months compared to 6.7 with chemo, and that is uh, statistically significant. It has a ratio of 0.64 with a confidence interval that goes from 0.49 to 0.9, uh, not crossing one. So this is modest benefit, and the toxicity profile is, is what we expect. So this is uh, a nice thing, nothing maybe terribly surprising, um, and I don't know that this has been published yet in a peer-reviewed journal, but it, we do have this FDA approval. Uh, you can't go a month without having a checkpoint inhibitor receiving FDA approval. Uh, the next update I want to talk about is an approval for the drug uh, Pexidartanib for symptomatic uh, tenosynovial giant cell tumor that is associated with severe morbidity or functional limitations. Now, uh, when you read about this uh, TGCT, tenosynovial giant cell tumor, it's said to be non-malignant, so uh, it does not invade uh, distant tissues. But uh, when you see pictures of this, it's quite deforming. Uh, think of somebody with bad RA uh, almost on steroids. It looks very bad and certainly can be disfiguring and certainly could limit functional mobility or use of hands. Uh, but it's basically a growth of the lining of the synovium, the cavity uh, between joints. So uh, in comes pexidartanib. And this is approved based on a placebo-based study uh, that was looking at uh, response rate. So it's based on response rate, but in a placebo-controlled study, that overall response rate was 38%, 15% uh, complete response rate, 23% partial response rate. Um, so we know it works better um, as far as response compared to placebo. It's non-malignant, so I don't even know if overall survival would have been uh, a fair comparison, uh, but these are patients who would not be amenable to surgery otherwise. So. Um, whether this should be used or not, it's a very rare cancer I'm not going to get into, but it is a new drug, so let's talk about the drug. Uh, Pexidartanib is a CSF1R inhibitor, which is colony-stimulating factor 1. Uh, it also, this uh, Pexidartanib, which is kind of becoming fun for me to say as I say it, also inhibits CKIT, 
just like a matnib, uh, and is also a FLT3 internal tandem duplication inhibitor as well. And maybe, maybe, maybe might be of interest to some uh, AML experts uh, who are using FLT3 inhibitors for those that are FLT3 mutated. Um, the dose is 4 milligrams POBID on an empty stomach because taking it with a high-fat meal increases the AUC by 100%, so doubling the AUC, which makes you wonder if you could just take 200 twice a day with food. Um, uh, PPIs decrease the AUC by 50% uh, because solubility is acid-dependent for this drug as it is for some other uh, uh, kinase inhibitors. Uh, it's a 3A4 substrate as well as a UGT substrate, so uh, UGT1A4, I believe. So there are drug-drug interactions with your typical 3A4 inducers and inhibitors as well as probenicid as an inhibitor of UGT1A4 and then the PPIs as well. Uh, there is a boxed warning. There are three boxed warnings on for this drug. One, for liver injury that is potentially fatal, uh, a need to monitor LFTs, and then a REMS program to make sure patients do get those LFTs monitored. That includes AST, ALT, total bilirubin, um, uh, ALKFOS, um, and, uh, and LDH, because LDH goes up with this drug quite a bit. Um, in fact, patients died uh, from liver disease that have been studied. They had permanently... Uh, permanent uh, biliary complications, uh, liver toxicity that took a long time to go away. There's even mention in the FDA briefing documents of patients who required bilirubin dialysis, which must be a thing, but it's not, not a thing I've ever heard of. Um, so it looks to be a fairly toxic drug here. The most interesting toxicity, 67% uh, of patients that received this drug had their hair color change. 28% um, had rash, 64% with fatigue, 15% uh, with hypertension, including 5% grade 3 hypertension. Uh, AST was elevated in 61% of patients, and 12 to 20% had a grade 3 increase in either AST or AL, uh, ALT. Uh, LDH uh, almost universally increased in 92%. Um, FOS went down in a significant number of patients, and I wonder... Um, just like a matinib inhibits CK, you do see hypophosphatemia and hypocalcemia with a matinib. So that may be a CK effect, uh, although I'm not sure about that. Um, there's also some mild myelosuppression, likely linked to FLT3 inhibition if it does inhibit wild-type FLT3. So 44% of patients had some form of neutropenia, 30% some form of anemia, and 15% some form of thrombocytopenia. This is not a disease I had ever heard of, a tenosynovial giant cell tumor, but there is a drug now pexidartinib that is approved for this, quote, non-malignant tumor. All right, the last thing I want to talk about, this was um, an article, I have a, a PubMed alert, so every time, every month, once a month, I get an email with any um, anything published in PubMed that has oncology pharmacists uh, basically in there, and this is from uh, the, the Journal of the American Pharmacists Association, published last month, um, Samuel Johnson uh, from the Board of Pharmacy Specialties. And what they were looking at was, so this is BPS. These are the folks who administer, for example, the BCOP uh, exam, uh, BCPS. So just to focus on oncology, there are three pathways to get to sit for the BCOP exam. Pathway one is uh, after you get your, your license as a pharmacist from an ACP-accredited institution, uh, like the Gatton College of Pharmacy, uh, you work for four years uh, in oncology, okay? So you have four years of dedicated oncology experience but no residency training. Path two is you do a PGY1 residency and then have two years of oncology dedicated practice. Uh, or pathway three, you do a PGY2 oncology pharmacy residency and you go right out. 
and take your BCOP exam. Uh, for example, I took Path 3, did a PGY2 in Oncology Pharmacy, meant to take the test the next year, forgot the deadline, took it the following year, and passed. So this is looking at pass rates. So if you take Pathway 1 in Oncology, and this is looking at years 2015 through 2018, so four years, so 2015, 16, 17, 18, so four years, um, there are about 500 patients who took BOC, BCOP during that time and their first time um, using Pathway 1. So PharmD, no residency, but four years oncology experience. Pass rate 50% with oncology. Uh, 168 took Pathway 2. So they did a PGY1 residency and then two years at least of oncology uh, experience. 75% of those pass. pass. Uh, and then 500 took Pathway 3. So after their PGY2 uh, sitting, the, sitting for the exam, pass rate 93%. So in other words, if you don't do any residency and take the BCOP exam, pass rates appear to be 50-50. You do one year of residency, the pass rates go up to 75%. And if you've done a PGY-2, the pass rate is, is close to 100% at 93%. Uh, by the way, these results are almost exactly the same for the psych exam. So 50%, so 49%, 72%, and 93% correspond to that. Uh, interestingly, uh, if you do a PGY-1, and then set PJ1 only, and then do two years of critical care experience, your pass rate was 94%. If you did a PGY2 in critical care, it was 99%. That's the, only, that's the one that's closest where it doesn't appear that PGY2 in critical care makes as much of a difference with regards to passing the specialty exam, but certainly does appear so for uh, BCOP. So if you're someone who took uh, and got your BCOP with uh, no residency training, uh, you certainly did better than many folks uh, and uh, performed maybe better than was expected um, because the pass rate there was only 50%. So those of you I've heard from some who are interested in, in sitting for BCOP, that's just a little uh, example of, of what you might expect pass rates to be. So 50, 75, and 93% whether you did zero, one, or two years of residency. That's all I have for today, and it was a big show. I uh, hope you understood everything. I was a little tongue-tied there throughout this thing. I apologize for that. Uh, thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. Follow the podcast on Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Uh, you can rate and review us on the iTunes store, uh, which is greatly appreciated. Tell us what you like, what you'd like to hear more of. And you can listen to us, uh, you know, pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts these days. Thanks for listening, and until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.